0: This is Sound Lives, a New Music Box podcast, sharing insights and stories from people who dedicate their lives to new music, brought to you by New Music USA, the resource for adventurous creators and listeners in the U.S. and beyond.
1: Welcome to Sound Lives. I'm Frank J. O'Terry. You're listening to a performance from the Bridgehampton Chamber Music Festival of the first movement of seven seascapes a work commissioned by the festival from Kevin Putz. Kevin is our guest for this episode, where we'll talk about the recent Metropolitan Opera premiere of his opera, The Hours, as well as his other operas, symphonies, and concertos, and how good he is at keeping secrets, both in his life and in his music. I'm going to start this conversation in perhaps a strange place, Mm -hmm. but I think it's rather apt to describe what I've certainly been feeling about your music and about you and what makes it so unique is I find that you as a person and as a composer are really good at keeping secrets <laughs> a very unusual quality in this day an era where we overshare everything on social media
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I am so intrigued let's go in this direction this is really interesting
1: well, I mean, the reason I say this is, I mean, you've had a number of things brewing these last few years, but I was very happily surprised when I saw the announcement that the Metropolitan Opera was going to give the world premiere of an opera of yours. And it seemed to come out of nowhere in a really <laughs> kind of wonderful way. And obviously it didn't because these things evolve over time. Even now that the Met is doing significantly more music by living composers it's still a rarity for them to actually premiere a new work very 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 exciting i know you've told this story countless times but to sort of unpack the surprise i think it would be really interesting to hear kind of a nutshell version of the story of how that came to be here
0: It really came about through my relationship with Renee Fleming, which started because we are both alumni of the Eastman School of Music. The Eastman School planned on commissioning a piece for their orchestra to play in New York on a tour. They wanted to commission me and they wanted to have one of their alumni performers perform it. And so they asked Renee, they asked me, and then we got together and talked about what it might be and arrived at a piece about Georgia O'Keeffe, which came from my finding some of O'Keeffe's letters. She wrote thousands of letters to Alfred Stieglitz, her husband and lifelong partner. Well, not lifelong because he died in the 40s, but they wrote beautiful, passionate, and really intriguing letters to one another. And so I got the rights to them from Yale University and I sort of extracted some texts and wrote a piece for her uh, in five movements called Letters from Georgia. And eventually she liked it. It was clearly a a good collaboration. You know, she liked what I was doing for her and writing for her voice. Of course, I loved the way she was singing it. So she asked me to expand that into a bigger piece, which included a baritone part for Rod Guilfrey. And that just went to a lot of orchestras around the country. At a reception somewhere, I think it was in Rochester, actually. And this was around the time that there was this article in the Times about Renee's not doing any more of these operas, you know, that she had been famous for doing. And I said, you know, if I if I wrote an opera, like thinking about a, like a new opera, would you be interested in in being in it? And she was immediately really enthusiastic, and really within weeks we started talking about possible subjects, and she brought up the hours. It had been something that she and her assistant, Paul Batzel, had been talking about, among other possibilities. And I just thought immediately that it was so interesting from an operatic perspective. I can imagine the kinds of things that you could do, as I have said a lot, I feel like I've said this so many times, uh, on the operatic stage that are not possible in in a book or a film, the kind of overlapping and the duets and the trios that eventually would happen once... The three characters who, of course, live in these different time periods, once they're introduced, you can begin to blur the lines between those worlds. And I just, you know, I love the, the film. I love the book. I knew both of them. And I just felt like I could summon the sort of atmosphere for the piece. And she brought it to the Met. She brought it to Peter Gelb. And he was, I think immediately excited about it and what it could be, you know, as far as a piece for three major opera stars. And, you know, I had had enough opera experience and, you know, he listened to Silent Night, my first opera, and felt good enough about it to commission me. So that's where it started about five years ago, I think. You're listening to an excerpt of Act 2, Scene 4 from the recently released
1: Noxos recording of the Minnesota Opera's production of Kevin Putz's Pulitzer Prize-winning opera, Silent Night.
2: It was the most amazing thing I shall never forget yeah. Hast du schon mal ...nicht schlecht, schlecht, quand elle gentil
1: Fantastic. Now, you and Renee both went to Eastman. Did you overlap at
0: all? No, I didn't. I think she was there only for a couple of years. It was before I was there. We're about, we're a little over 10 years apart in age. I think she she spent a couple of, of years there, but then moved on. So I knew who she was, of course. I mean, everybody knew who she was. But Eastman was a really special place for me. I had an incredible time there as an undergrad and also during my doctorate. And I still think it's just an incredible institution, a great place to learn about music getting back to this whole notion of yeah. surprise
1: and secrets, I think it translates into your music in that you're able to create really, really effective narratives, both mm-hmm. in instrumental pieces and in operatic pieces, by not giving away all the goods mm-hmm. immediately, by having things develop over time so that when you get to the end of something whether you're performing it or just listening to it you really feel that you've just experienced something really significant
0: i can't thank you enough it's rare that i i talk about the actual content of my music in interviews and <laughs> believe it or not especially when it comes to opera, it's about all these other things character development etc but for me what you're describing is the single most important sort of motivating factor not only in my music, but to write music, to set these moments up. And as you said, to save something, to keep something in reserve so that there's a payoff for the attentive listener (laughs) who's been tracking the things that have been happening, for it to make sense when the idea achieves fruition, you know, in in whatever direction it's going. This is the thing I love the most about music, especially large forms, um, which is why I think I do better with those forms. You know, when someone asked me to write a five minute piece, I don't know what to do. I need more time, you know, to set set things up and let them go where they need to go. But I think there are other composers who do the opposite so well. You know, just you're immediately dazzled. It could be a three-minute span. You're interested. But that kind of development and planting of seeds that I want to grow and I want the audience to understand. That's another part I would add that I actually don't want the audience to be confused. (laughs) I want them to be with me. And I'm not sure that's, maybe the case with every composer but or or maybe there are varying degrees of it but you know i very much want it to be like okay we got this okay we got this carrying those things with me as a listener you know where are we going to go with it that's a very interesting observation and it's very gratifying that you pointed out i do think it's what makes it
1: so appealing to soloists because soloists get to evolve during the process of performing the piece, whether it's an opera, Mm -hmm. you go through this narrative arc with somebody, or even a concertante work for a soloist and orchestra. And you've certainly written tons of these. You've had really significant advocates. When they perform this music, they go through a process of transformation, which is something they do in front of an audience. And in a way, it shines light on them as interpretive musicians in a way that Really, kind of enhances the performative aspect of this music.
0: That's interesting. I, I haven't actually discussed that aspect of the music w- with the performers and the conductors I work with. I hope it's something that, that appeals to them. You know, the idea that they start somewhere and go somewhere, even if it's a certain amount of virtuosity that is held in reserve or a kind of lyricism or a kind of emotional depth that has to be earned. That's something that I've continued to, to work on, you know, telling the story with those elements and having them arrive at the right place. I remember, you know, there have been times where I think I haven't gotten right. In fact, I remember one of those early summers at Cabrillo, Aaron Karnas and I were on the same concert, and I had an early version of my third symphony. He was saying, you know, in a very kind of a nurturing sort of supportive way that like, (laughs) I hadn't quite earned the, the end of the piece. It was satisfying, but there needs to be more before it gets there. I think he was right too. I knew something was not quite right. And what I used to do is I would compose where I'm going before I got there. Actually, that's something I don't do anymore because I, for one thing, I don't want to rush the process of getting there compositionally. Also, I don't know exactly where the piece is going to need to go until I get there. For example, the trio at the end of The Hours, that was not something that I I thought, oh, this is going to be, I can't wait to get to this moment. I'm going to compose it and then find my way there. I didn't actually know how it would operate musically. I didn't know the content of it exactly, except that that we wanted the three stars to be on the stage singing at the same time in, in a trio for the, really, for the first time, sort of the qualities of their voices blending for the first time. But... Getting there was something I had to earn as a composer.
1: That's amazing to me because that trio felt so inevitable. I thought you had composed because it's like this big moment and you kind of built everything toward it, but that evolved as you were writing it.
0: That's actually yeah, amazing it, to me. Thank you. I mean, it, it did. In some some ways, you have to just deal with the environment where you are. You know. So in other words, after two, maybe two and a half hours of music, where haven't I been yet? And for me, when I got there, I began that moment with the, the orchestra playing a sort of pulse. And you'd heard so much of that in the opera. There's so much clock-like pulsing going on. I thought the thing to do is not to have that at all, to just have the, the orchestra as a sort of resonating chamber for the three singers and just let them kind of sculpt the sound and the orchestra sort of there just sort of to echo the harmony that they're they're singing. But So that for me felt like the thing I hadn't quite done yet. Another thing I I find satisfying about composing is that I have to kind of deal with where I am at the moment, react to not just the immediate context, but the entire context and find the solution. That was the case with that opera.
1: Let's hear an excerpt of Renee Fleming, Kelly O'Hara and Joyce DiDonato singing that trio from the final dress rehearsal of the Metropolitan Opera production of Kevin Putz and librettist Greg Pierce's The Hours, Featuring the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra, conducted by Yannick Nezet Sega. It's interesting that you say you've never talked to musicians about this, but they inherently get it because there've been lots of really effective performances of your music. You can feel their transformation as well as the music's transformation, both in the operas and in the instrumental works, orchestra and chamber pieces as well. Early on, you were also a performer. You were active as a pianist. I'm wondering if part of that sensitivity to interpreters comes from the fact that that's a role that you had had.
0: Yeah, that could be. And I feel like the less I perform, the further away I get from that sensitivity to that experience, being on the stage for 30 minutes and getting to this moment two minutes from the end. What does that feel like? I, I feel like I've, to some extent, I've, I've lost a, a little of that just because I've decided to focus almost entirely on composing. I just feel like being the jack of all trades is not something I've, or, you know, I really have time to do with the rest of my life. And I have heard from time to time, either people who commissioned to my music and administration or something, say these things, you know, that, you know, the music has an arc and it goes someplace and it develops and it builds. And the performers I work with are mostly not new music performers. So what I'm dealing with, or, you know, I'm writing a piece right now for Joshua Bell. As I present him this piece for with orchestra, you know, he's going to be thinking of Prokofiev and <laughs> Beethoven and Brahms and at some level comparing the experience of it and the success of it and the craft of it, if it's there, to those composers. And so it puts me under uh, under pressure, but I mean, I, I think that's something that I like. The performers like the ones I've written concertos for. They expect things to kind of arrive in a satisfying way. They're not so interested in enigmatic endings or <laughs> they're used to music that goes to a place successfully and effectively and lets them do what they are used to doing on their instruments and gives the entire structure a satisfying arc and a satisfying shape. And so it'd be very different you know if i if i were commissioned by different people like if claire chase asked me to write her a piece or if ensemble modern asked you know which has never happened but you know i would feel like i'm in a different space i could do different things and i would probably do those things but the work that i, I have a lot of it comes from performers who are, who also do or mostly do the standard repertoire
1: interesting so it's tailor made in a way And I'm curious, you know, going back early on, this piano concerto that you played at Cabrillo, Mm -hmm. which you wrote very, very personal, very poignant essay about for New Music Box many, many years ago. I assume you wrote that for yourself.
0: I didn't, actually. I wrote that for Jeffrey Kahane. I premiered it with Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra, and then I played it. And it hasn't been played a whole lot. I might revisit it and do some revisions. I'd like to record it, actually. But, yeah, that was actually an incredible experience and a kind of harrowing experience as well. as I wrote in that essay you're you're describing, you know, it was a time when i I wasn't sleeping a whole lot. We had a very young baby. <laughs> I had this idea that I could from memory play my piano concerto with Marin Alsop at the Cabrillo Festival. and it, it had gone fine. And then, you know, suddenly in the performance, I didn't know where I was. I just sort of lost, <laughs> I completely lost track of where I was in the third movement. Not something I'd experienced in rehearsals or, or practicing. And because I don't perform a lot, or I hadn't been performing a lot, I wasn't used to that kind of thing. And so I just stopped and, and asked if we could start the movement over, which was, I think, a kind of a surprise to Maren. <laughs> probably doesn't happen to her very often, if ever. That was really an experience. And to have to play my own piece like that and to experience my music as a performer, it was really something that had an impact on the concertos I wrote thereafter.
1: I love the third movement. I wasn't at that performance at Cabrillo. And the thing that I find so stunning about that movement is how you just ever so briefly in the beginning use this prepared piano thing. Ah. You have the stick inside. It's there very briefly. It's not the centerpiece of anything. Mm but it's a flavor and it's yeah. extremely effective. It suddenly happens. It's like, oh, there's that. And then it goes into <laughs> yeah. something. And then I, I go, go, and then I go back to
0: it, you know, whatever, Ravel, Progovia, that's as out there as I get. And well, maybe that's not entirely true, but you know, we're in an age where timbre is such a area of exploration for so many of my colleagues and contemporaries. And I'm just dazzled by these scores. I'm dazzled by what they do and the kind of care given to the beginning, the middle and end of every note and the kinds of effects that are being experimented with. And there's some quote, you probably know this quote from Rachmaninoff. He said, I've tried to embrace the, <laughs> the music of my time and I feel like a ghost walking among the living or something. I just feel like I sort of do what I do. And I, you know, the things I do as a as a musician and a composer are, are so deeply ingrained and they're just such a, a part of who I am. They're the things that really excite me. And they're, often very, very simple things as you can hear it in the music, but I sort of can't escape it. It truly is what I find most exciting about the music I love. Simple, beautiful moments that will probably end up being almost nothing on the page, but what they do to me emotionally is fantastic.
1: You're being very self-effacing with this because I thought after walking out of the performance of The Hours that this is an opera that could only be written now. It was very much a piece of our time. And it sounded like a piece of our time. You know, the kinds of juxtapositions, the kinds of overlapping of different styles of different elements. And I'm also thinking of the concerto that you recently wrote for Time for Three. They're a group that's pretty much associated with Americana and what you did doesn't sound like what they normally do but it was an element of it and it was completely idiomatic to what they do and i think you took them on a journey taking them to somewhere else where they've never gone before but once again it's very much of this time here's a bit of the second movement of that concerto kevin putz wrote for time for three which is called contact and which just won the 2023 grammy award for Best Contemporary Classical Composition. It's featured on a 2022 Deutsche Grammophon recording called Letters for the Future in a performance by Time for Three, who also received the 2023 Grammy Award for Best Classical Instrumental Solo for this album. They're joined by the Philadelphia Orchestra, conducted by Shan Zhen.
0: That is cool to hear. That concerto called Contact for Time for Three and the hours were written at the same time, which is something I have not done much in the past. I usually do a piece and I think about only that piece and then I move on. As far as these juxtapositions, that's another thing. It doesn't occur so much in my concert music, but in opera, it really seems to happen and people have different opinions about it and its validity and whether or not it leads to a recognizable voice. And it really isn't of so much interest to me. I'm more interested in telling the story in the most effective way I can. And, you know, for me, I needed those really stark juxtapositions of very different vocabularies to tell that story in the most effective way. You know, you're dealing with three women who are living in different time periods, different countries, different situations. I needed there to be real delineations between them the other thing is these decisions, I think the composers make, as you know, Frank, we do what excites us as composers, not just like what needs to happen for this piece, what needs to happen for the arts. It's more like, what do I want to do? What would be fun to try and make work? And for me, a lot of that is sometimes having a very stark seam between two scenes and sometimes having it be utterly seamless. And so can you make the audience not really understand how they got to where they are both of those things i find i just find really exciting as i'm working you know just in my little office upstairs and the other thing that i found found really exciting about writing the hours was the use of the chorus and how they could interact with the principals and the orchestra contrapuntally it's fine to write an aria <laughs> that's interesting and that's exciting as a composer but it's even better if there could be a duet and if the duet could be sung between two characters who are living 40 years apart, and also if the chorus can be singing the things that they're thinking in their heads at the same time. So you have this sort of three-part lyrical counterpoint. Just from a composer's perspective, that really kept me interested in writing this opera during a very uninspiring period where we're all isolated and not knowing when live performance might happen again. So interesting to talk about these, these aspects of that opera.
1: Yeah, that's the aspect of it we haven't gotten to yet. Is that yet both those pieces, the concerto for time for three and the hours, were created during the pandemic? And I think, in some ways, certainly in the hours where there's a narrative story, there is definitely the story about loss Mm -hmm. and moving on, but also stasis and dealing with that. And that is very much
0: the present moment. Actually, come to think of it, Most of the writing of the concerto for Time for Three was done before we went into isolation. We just continued to work on it. We edited, we revised, we tried things out, we added and subtracted. And I reorchestrated quite a bit. I'm too close to the opera for one thing. I I mean, one part of writing an opera for the Met is that when it's over, you really want to take a break from it. I mean, it's just so all-encompassing. It's exhausting. I mean, it was so exciting, but also an emotional roller coaster from the time rehearsal started but really the last several years just you know composing the entire piece and leading up to this premiere i think only maybe in 10 years or so will i really understand the way the pandemic affected the composing of that piece I, certainly there were times when it was hard to compose because everybody was home and you know my son was doing remote school and and you know i mean i need privacy to compose so i was sometimes getting up very early in the morning The other part of things is that once I started it and I knew it was going in the direction I wanted and I'd established the kinds of music for the three characters, in some sense, the piece writes itself. I mean, it doesn't write itself. Of course it doesn't. I mean, it's tons and tons of of work and revision and considering and reconsidering. But the hardest thing for me is just deciding on the material. And then the development of it feels logical after that.
1: We haven't really talked about another thing that I feel really is a key part of your music is its sensitivity in its orchestration how carefully orchestrated it is whether it's a symphonic work and i want to talk a bit about the symphonies or how the orchestra is used in an opera i'm wondering you know how ingrained orchestration is to you in your thinking as you're composing are you one of these people who jots down ideas and short score or a piano score and then orchestrates, or does it come fully formed with the orchestration?
0: Yeah, that, it's just a massive topic. I would say, you know, the things you've mentioned are the, are the most important things to me as a composer. Orchestration, I was a student of Jacob Druckman at Yale, and I remember him saying that he always just wanted to hurry up and finish the sketch or the short score so he could orchestrate, because it really, for him, was just like being in a candy store or something. And for me, it's the same thing. I absolutely love the process of orchestrating. And it's about half of the process for me writing an opera. So I begin with a, a piano reduction because what I found is that opera companies desperately need a piano reduction. You know, this is the first that people hear of the piece is in workshops and rehearsals. And it has to actually work as a piano part. It has to, you know, sound effective. And so the challenge is doing that, and also knowing not exactly, but almost exactly what I'm going to do with the orchestration when it comes to that. But there are always little questions that are not answered. And those are the things that are just so fascinating for me about the process of orchestrating, which for the hours took over a year. I think about the symphonies I've written and those earlier orchestra pieces. Of course, orchestration was important to, to me back then, as it is now. But I think over the years, I've just gotten better at finding really practical ways to do very complex things with an orchestra. And that's actually something that I remember my other mentor at Gale, Martin Bresnik, would always say about Druckmann's music. He would say, he has this way of making the most complex structures and the, you know complex textures and things happening. But you look at each part, you look at the trumpet two part, and it's the easiest thing in the world. I absolutely love that. The fact that I could do something for the violins, for the oboes, for the vibraphone player, for the harpist, that is completely manageable on their instrument in the week that they have to learn this piece and perform it. But the composite effect of the entire thing is what it is. So I don't find that a kind of burden. I find it absolutely fascinating to find ways, some really difficult gesture that I have swooping up and down can I do what Stravinsky did and, you know, make that totally idiomatic for all the instruments involved? It's a huge part of the process and for opera as well. And sometimes I feel in the opera, things get buried a little bit in the pit. I wish they would, on the, on the orchestra stage for a symphony orchestra, It's it's just a different feel entirely. And so I think For example, John Adams, he approaches opera orchestration in a very different way from his orchestral pieces, and very smartly so, because some of the detail can kind of get lost or or some of the subtle details in orchestration or just not matter as much, because it just gets kind of a little bit submerged in opera. But yeah, it it really is. um, And for any, any piece I write that involves an orchestra, these days I start with a piano reduction. So for example, Contact, The piece I'm doing right now for Josh Bell or or Renee Fleming's Song Cycles all begins with piano. And sometimes I add a staff if there's something I can't quite fit in two hands. But I always put very explicit notes to myself, you know, harp, string pizzicato, brass, mutes, or even something simple like brass slash woodwinds, you know, just to know that I'm not thinking strings. But usually when I get there, you know, I remember what I was doing anyway, because the ideas spring from, my imagination of what will happen in the orchestra where and that wasn't really the case so much you know when i started writing orchestra pieces i play the piano and then improvise the ideas on the piano and not have a a super clear idea of how that would translate to orchestra but these days when i play something on the piano i'm pretty sure of exactly how i will translate that to orchestra interesting it sounds like it's time for you to write your fifth symphony <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's so it's so arrogant a symphony. I'm going to write a symphony. Even thinking about my four symphonies. It feels like I've I've tried to do something significant, but you know, really I just didn't know what else to call them, you know, an orchestra piece that's about 25 minutes long. Well, my first one was my dissertation at, at Eastman. That did occur to me, you know, that I'm going to write a, an important orchestra piece after Chris Rouse had made me listen to a hundred symphonies from all over the world as part of my lessons. I thought I would try my hand at it. And with the first three, I had this plan that I was going to write shorter symphonies that are one movement long, and then eventually connect them all into a massive symphony. But it just didn't happen. Well,
1: the first two are single movement
0: symphonies. Right. You know, when you
1: talk about contemporary, I mean, that's certainly been antecedents for it. You know, Samuel Barber wrote a really great single movement first symphony. There's the, the Sibelius, even before that, the seventh. But writing single movement symphonies is really a more contemporary kind of approach rather than parsing it, rather than falling into the, the trap, the cliche of fast, slow, dance-like, even faster. And in a way, your whole idea of wanting to create surprise and create moments, if you already give people a roadmap of what it's gonna be, you're kind of giving away the goods. Whereas if you have a single movement, it could go anywhere you want it to go.
0: Again, an excellent point. And I think, as has been noted, there's a cinematic quality to my music. And in fact, I, I love film and not just film music, but I love film itself. And I think with those pieces, those single movement pieces, I thought I want to make it an unbroken narrative arc like a film, like, why should we have to stop? And I've kind of changed my tune on that a little. In fact, I just finished a, a concerto for orchestra that were premiered in St. Louis, and it's like seven movements. There are a couple of those that, that are a, a taka, but there is something I also do like about the chapter. You know this, it's a relief to stop and then say, okay, I can start entirely different. These days, I, I'm i not sure where I am about, about that. Certainly with, with opera, you know, it, it has to feel like, at least two halves that are unbroken, maybe three. But at the time, I just thought there's no reason to stop. I should be able to continue this uh, momentum and hold the audience with me throughout a span of 25 minutes if I do it right. That was the motivation for that. Here's the initially simple
1: and very beautiful opening of Kevin Putz's Second Symphony, a work that was created in response to the terrorist acts of September 11th, 2001. In a performance by the Peabody Symphony Orchestra conducted by Marin Alsop, released on the Noxos American Classics series.
0: Elizabeth Cree is 90 minutes, but that was something that Mark Campbell and I, that was our decision from the beginning. Like, this is a thriller. We do not want to stop. And some opera companies want to, you know, they, they say, what if we stopped here? Because they want to sell drinks and <laughs> t-shirts or whatever. In fact, that's kind of the first thing you think about, you know, when you write an opera, like, okay, where's the act break in this story? Because like, it has to be somewhere that makes sense. It has to make people want to come back and hear the second half so it's a necessity I, I i suppose i mean of course movies used to also have have a break <laughs> and they probably still should but yeah you know. you've not done a film score is that something you'd be no interested? i really want to i really want to i'm hoping for that in the next few years we were very excited that the hours you know the hd broadcast was like number eight and box office gross <laughs> so i feel like a little bit of a that's the closest i've come to a film composing but It was in theaters and a lot of people went to see it which was exciting wow getting back to elizabeth cree
1: i don't want to give away the goods on this because it is a mystery it is a whodunit it's rather startling and i don't want to ruin it for people who maybe haven't heard or seen it yet and you know hopefully there'll be many more opportunities for them to do so but i'm curious because You're sort of at the edge of your seat through the whole thing in a way, trying to figure out who this serial killer is. How did that shape the kinds of musical decisions you had in terms of resolving things in terms of shaping music? And I feel like I'm not completely giving away the goods here. It doesn't completely resolve. There is a lot of ambiguity to it, which I think is part of its power. But once again, that's a musical thing. And I felt it was enhanced by that music, but I wasn't quite sure how you were doing it. So I'm curious how you approached it.
0: Well, as far as the moment when you, you know, you find out what's been going on, I probably was reserving something for the kind of most frenetic aria to happen at the end for Elizabeth. That piece is actually, it's interesting. You know, I think maybe now, now I'm thinking all my operas are the same. Just talking to you today, Frank, because Silent Night has three armies, <laughs> and you cycle me the French, and now it's the Germans, and now it's the Scottish, and The Hours has these three time periods. Elizabeth Cree actually does a similar thing in that there are very specific types of music that are associated with the situation. So there's like the British Library, the reading room and it has its own sort of tranquil setting and then there's the music of inspector kildare i was trying to get to the bottom of this whole thing and then there's the courtroom music it just keeps kind of cycling through those and i want the audience to to know okay we're back to this one again you know and each time one of those returns it goes a little further i add more in the inspector scenes you know i add more witnesses the chorus basically gets bigger as each repetition of that scene occurs so the growth happens cyclically i suppose but as far as that moment when Elizabeth reveals what's been happening, I don't know if, I can't remember if when I got there, I thought I've got to do something I haven't done yet for Elizabeth's character, or if it was sort of always a kind of a card I hadn't played yet in the back of my mind that I was saving for that moment for her to make this reveal. And then the, the coda of the piece was also a new thing, like something I hadn't gone to yet musically, which actually I, I feel like somehow it reminds me of mozart even though the, the quality of the music isn't mozart mozart is always in the back of my mind and in fact i think this is going off on a little bit of a tangent but i think if mozart were around today he would do a similar polystylistic thing like he would draw from all these musics which he's kind of did like the things he heard in europe just stuck to him and then he would you know react to the music he heard in you know italy or if he was in prague or or london or you know of course the turkish stuff going on at the time there's a lot more Polystylism. I mean, then there's of course like the Baroque contrapuntal sort of learned style that he was also referring to. So I it kind of it'd be interesting to to see, <laughs> but I feel like he Mozart is my model for everything in, in a certain way. As long as we're talking Mozart, it reminds me
1: of two different things. It reminds me of years ago when I did one of these talks with Joan Tower. She said that she really felt that there were two kinds of composers. There were instrumental composers and there were vocal composers and (laughs) rare was it that you would have somebody who felt equally comfortable doing both and she did that she explained that by means of saying about herself that she's an instrumental composer that she wasn't really interested in writing vocal music she's written very very little and it's not something she wants to do but we agreed you know with a rare example of is mozart who was equally fluent as an operatic composer and as a composer of symphonies and mm-hmm. piano concertos string quartets and and what have you and you are equally comfortable in both worlds and in a way they sort of inform each other it's it's interesting learning that the time for three concerto and the hours were written even not you know the particulars of them but there was some overlap in the composition because i feel like the two things feed off of each other, the way that there's always a narrative sense in the instrumental pieces, even if there isn't a word-oriented narrative, even if it's an abstract musical work. And in the operas, as you mentioned, your orchestration is so significant in your operas the way it is in your instrumental music as well. So the, the same attention to detail in the instrumental lines. But there's another thing, your flute concerto. Very interesting where you're directly referencing Mm -hmm. Mozart. Now, I'll tell you a funny thing about my listening to this piece. The first time I heard it, I heard it before I read your program note. And I'm really glad that I did because I'm listening and I hear something and I'm like, that sort of vaguely sounds this is weird it sort of vaguely feels like, you know, the Mozart piano concerto number twenty one C major. And then all of a sudden it's there. It comes out, you know, the full-on thing. Had I read the program note, I would have been waiting for it. So the surprise would have been gone. It was just very effective the way that was done. Let's listen to how Kevin puts hints at Mozart's famous piano concerto number twenty one in C major in the second movement of his two thousand and thirteen flute concerto. This is Adam Walker on flute with the Peabody Symphony conducted by Marin Alsop from that same Noxos American Classics disc.
0: The connection between opera and concertos is something that often is talked about in reference to Mozart, that those piano concertos he wrote, which are among my favorite pieces in the world, are very operatic. They work in the same way that the piano operates like like a singer, like singing an aria. I think in similar ways that with opera, you're often dealing with the one against the group, the one reacting to the group, the solo voice, which is un aided and undoubled and, uh, you know, in relation to a group of people playing, surrounding it. And it's the same with a a concerto group. It's actually very challenging. You know, it seems like all I do these days is write concertos and operas. And when I had to begin this this new concerto for orchestra, it was actually very difficult because I couldn't use that model. The setting up the entrance of a person, (laughs) a voice, and what does that voice sing as an independent voice against a group of voices? And what's the dialogue like between the orchestra and the soloist? Does the soloist ever accompany the orchestra and sort of get embedded as an accompanist and then and then emerge as again as a soloist as happens so gorgeously in those Piano concertos by Mozart. I think John Adams is the composer uh, who is equally comfortable writing opera and and Britten actually. Britten Britten's I guess maybe he's mostly known for his operas, but I mean the instrumental those pieces for all orchestra chamber ensemble they're just amazing pieces. So it's brilliantly crafted and Barber actually and Bar yeah Barber. Although sadly his second
1: opera is one of the great tragedies. It, it yeah, the New Met, but certainly well, Vanessa <laughs> remains one of the yeah. key
0: works? It's hard to say, you know, these things like when they arrive on the scene, maybe the circumstances aren't right, but then over time, people reconsider their feelings about it. I heard the Nixon in China, I, I haven't read much about the, the origins of it, but you know, that wasn't so well received. And And now I think it's like, you know, when you think of American opera, you know, that's certainly one of the most important.
1: Alex Ross wrote an an article, he said, whatever happened to Nixon in China? And then all of a sudden, people started listening again. And then all of a sudden, there were productions everywhere. So that's an exciting thing, witnessing that transformation happen. But to take it back to you, another opera, there's something I'm hoping there's a similar transformation with, just because as a, as a listener, I always wanna hear the thing I haven't heard, and I've never heard The Manchurian Candidate. That's mm-hmm. the only one of your four operas that I've yet to hear. That's a work that's so timely because of its topic. Well, Manchurian candidates, similarly, they're fictitious characters from this, the amazing Frank Sinatra, Angela Lansbury movie, but it's all about democracy being compromised, about mm-hmm. this plot, to destroy democracy and that seems to be what's happening all around us here in the us elsewhere in the world so it seems very much a work for this zeitgeist
0: that is true i'm not someone who likes to pretend about my music or mince words about it either. I just think there are problems with that opera that I went into it, into the composing of it, sort of glibly, actually, you know, feeling, oh, I wrote my first opera and it went great, so I'm just going to do it. you know, I'm going to do the same kind of thing with with the Manchurian Candidate. And it's a different kind of piece entirely. It's a, a thriller, it's about suspense. Adopting the same kind of polystylistic approach just doesn't entirely work. It takes the audience out of that focus. I think it, it contains some of the best music I've written, but I would like to revisit it <laughs> at some point. I have these plans to do things like this, but it's like you get busy with other projects. Of course, the expectation also after Silent Night, I think was, was pretty great. It's it's pretty hard to live up to those expectations, but I do think I, I'd like to to tweak some things in that piece and see what we might a new production might emerge from that. It would be wonderful to yeah it'd be uh, a good i know it's sadly we are in a time where we're it's just a fight to maintain the things that we value in our society that's uh really scary
1: with the flute concerto which we sort of talked the way that you used mozart's music and sort of transformed it and made it your own i mean i'm thinking of what you did going even further along those lines being inspired by other music, but then not actually using it in your mm-hmm. third and fourth symphonies. You know, your third symphony was inspired by an album by Bjork, but there there are no Bjork tunes in the no. symphony. And even further, your fourth symphony was inspired, and in, originally you were going to use music of Native American peoples of the territory around San Juan Batista, where... Mm-hmm. The premiere took place, this incredible land. It's funny, when I think of that place, I always think of Vertigo, because that's where that... Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's (laughs) that's the music that's glued in my head for (laughs) that. Mine too. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But, you know, you wound up not using the Native American music because you were told not to because of the sensitivities. And it's very interesting, you know, how do you reference other music without using it and what is your process for doing that? I'm curious.
0: In the case of that third symphony, which I call Vespertine, that's the subtitle of the, <laughs> began as a, as a little shorter piece, as I think I described earlier, that that's the piece that Aaron Kernis was commenting on, a Cabrillo. But then I decided to expand it a little and make it into a, a full fledged symphony. I'm not up to date on a lot of things that are going on, pop music, for example. So, I was at the Academy in Rome, living there as a fellow and whatever year that was, 2001, I guess. And the TV was on some kind of like MTV in Italy, whatever that is. Is there still MTV? (laughs) There used to be. Anyway, and my friend who is an art historian was just hanging out. And I said, oh, what is that? I love that. There was like this video, like a music video. And I said, what is that? She's like, that's Bjork. You haven't heard Bjork's music? I was like, well, I I mean, I heard of her, but this is gorgeous. Like it's this so beautiful timbrely. There's this gorgeous string textures and choral textures. And I really like the shapes of her voice, like the kinds of things she was doing, the swoops of her, of her singing and the kind of just the melodic quality of, of her singing in relation to, and the kind of oddness too, the oddness and the transparency and the fragility of her singing and sometimes power as well in relation to this sonic world around her. And so I just thought, oh, I want to do something I want to like react to this in my own way. And I don't know how well it succeeds, but I was interested in the same kinds of things, you know, making the orchestra feel like this swirling sound world around the melodic ideas of the piece and to have the melodic ideas just in some sense be an imitation of her vocal style and that's really all it all it is you know I wasn't really interested in in using melodies but more just reacting to the sound world of, of that album
1: see if you can hear the influence of Bjork in this passage from Kevin Putz's symphony number no. three Vespertine which we're listening to in a performance by the Fort Worth Symphony conducted by Miguel Harth-Badoya from the CD take six released on the orchestra's own label So have you ever gotten the symphony to Bjork? Has she heard it?
0: I'm not sure she's heard it. I asked if I could name the movement titles after her song. I think they're quotes from her lyrics. And I guess I got a note back that she was okay with that, but does not endorse the project or does not, I can't remember what the the wording was, but (laughs) I'm not sure it'd be her kind of thing. I'm not sure when it comes to modern classical music i think she's into some pretty out there stuff and my stuff isn't isn't in that category so you know that's that's a piece i like to go back into and do what i i've learned over the years and with regard to this sort of practical scoring because i think in many ways that orchestra piece is it's too hard i mean it's not like it's impossible it's not like as hard as thomas addis or something but you know, to play it really well, it requires a lot of re- a lot more rehearsal than I think people really have. And so I feel like I can find ways to be more practical and have it just play itself better in a week of rehearsal. Yeah, I was pretty um, demanding, actually, of orchestras, which was only like, what, 15 years ago. But I feel like since then I've come to terms with what an orchestra can realistically do, even with the very best players in a few rehearsals.
1: Now the fourth symphony, again, you're referencing music without actually using it. It inspired you to create your own music. I'm curious about that process.
0: I found transcriptions of those Mutsun melodies from that time, the early days of the mission San Juan Batista. They're actually available in the library. There's a, one of the, one of the missionaries transcribed some of their, of their tunes. I didn't, of course, as, as you said, I didn't want to quote any of them because they're, those tunes are, they were used for a very specific purpose and it's sort of not okay to just use them for another purpose, which would be, you know, a orchestral performance. So I think what I, I did was I sort of tried to encapsulate the intervallic qualities of some of them, which a lot of them are somewhat pentatonic, and the kind of shapes, just melodic, rhythmic shapes of some of them, but just didn't do anything, quote anything verbatim. There's a lot in that piece, but that one movement I think of the second movement, I think of as kind of like a an imaginary compendium of melodies, which are all derived by myself. <laughs> Let's listen to some of the second movement of Kevin puts
1: his symphony number no. four. From Mission San Juan, in a performance by the Baltimore Symphony conducted by Marin Alsop, which was released on Harmonia Mundi. We're living in a very surreal time. How to address this as a creative artist, or as an interpretive artist, or even as a listener to this work? What should we be more mindful of?
0: That is really a good question. There's a lot of pressure, I think, to have a stance on various things. And I just wouldn't bring any of that to composing. I would ignore all of that. And my colleagues are very respectful and we all are of each other and we're very polite to one another, but whether or not my colleagues like my music is not of any importance to me. I just feel like rather than saying, here's what's going on right now in this moment, of course you should be open to those things, whatever's going on, the zeitgeist. I would just look at all of music that you've heard and that has meant something to you from the very beginning and feel like it's okay to incorporate all of that and to sort of build a voice from all of it and have that be the part of you that remains inviolate to all of these pressures that exist right now in the world. Also, all the transparency that exists through social media that it feels like there's almost no private space now. I would make your, your music your private space and the place that you can do the, the things that, you believe fervently in that you are most emotionally connected to. That's certainly been my approach to things over the however many years I've been doing this.
1: And thoughts for
0: listeners. Well, it's
1: interesting because you said earlier in this conversation that you want to take the audience along. You don't want them to be baffled.
0: You know, you started this talk with that. I'm a composer of, of secrets and it's because I'm really only interested in Listeners, the public, whoever that is, engaging with my music on its own. I'm not interested in in telling my story a whole lot or having a big internet presence. I'm just not good at it. There are composers who are, are really successful at sort of presenting themselves as, as creators and and sort of influencers. And I'm I'm just not one of those people. I'm I'm really interested, like you said, pushing play and having the experience be something that can be followed without any idea what you're about to hear. Everything you need to know is there in the music and hopefully you find it engaging and powerful just because of the music itself, not because you like me or you like what I have to say, or you like my politics, I just want it to be about the music. And so I think that's why I there's a sort of maybe there's a kind of elusive quality or there's something that you just like you didn't know about my opera you didn't know about other things. I'm just not really interested in putting it out there. You know, I'm interested in having the projects that I I can really invest in emotionally and intellectually, just getting them out in the world and the recording is the final thing for me. I really think, you know, to put the recording out in the world, it's kind of fascinating to see What might happen, you know, once it's out there in the world, like who reacts to it? Does someone in Finland hear it or, you know, and write to me out of the blue? I find that really interesting that you can do that as a composer and kind of place something in the culture that may or may not resonate or may or may not mean something to to someone else who doesn't know anything about me at all, just like heard this recording on the radio or heard a performance of it and might want to connect in that way. I think it's really interesting. So that's just a very interesting point that you listened to that piece without any knowledge of it. And hopefully, by the time you got to the end of that movement, it made some sense. I'm not trying to criticize people sort of coming down one way or the other on things, but it really does feel like that's where we are as a society. You know, you're either like on this side or you're on this side, and there's no gray area and there's no room for discussion.
1: You know, I have to say this whole idea, you know, you're you're either for us or against us. I mean, I, re- I remember, I think it was W who said this with the terrorists you're either with us or you're with the terrorists and this sort of binary thing i think it's very dangerous and i think it's why we're so polarized as a society right now about every
0: single issue as a writer as a poet or whatever you are a painter you should be able to go to that place and just shut out everything else and like these are the harmonies i i love this is the way of working that i feel more at home than any other moment in my life you know this is it thank you for spending an hour with oh, me. oh yeah thank you for ha- for this is I'm this honored is to great. be part of this thing
1: that brings us to the end of this episode of sound lives with Kevin Putz. but before we sign off let's listen to a bit of one more piece of his music this is from his setting of words by Mother Teresa called The Fruit of Silence, which is a movement of his choral work, To Touch the Sky, which is here performed by Conspirare under the direction of Craig Hella Johnson, also from that Harmonia Mundi CD.
0: New Music Box is brought to you by New Music USA, the resource for adventurous creators and listeners in the US and beyond. This program is funded in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, the New York State Council on the Arts, the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, and listeners like you. If you enjoyed today's episode, visit newmusicusa.org to explore more stories and voices from our new music community.